Well, if you're here today, um, I probably don't have to tell you that you are going to suffer at some point in your life. I'm guessing maybe you showed up because you're walking through suffering too. Um, and if you haven't yet, it will probably come at some point. And I'm also here to tell you your suffering is going to transform you in one way or another. But your suffering is not meaningless because God promises to restore us. So I'll tell you, I'll start by telling you a little bit of my story, which Hannah gave you a good preview of. Um, for those who maybe have not met me before or didn't know me before the wheelchair, um, you might be surprised to know that I uh, ran a marathon, I ran lots of half marathons, my idea was fun, of fun was mountain climbing and camping and fishing and all sorts of things like that. In fact, since my mom's here, I'll tell you the funny story. One time I was climbing a mountain in California, and she was so nervous that she didn't hear from me around midnight that she and a friend called the 700 Club because they thought I had fallen <laughs> off a mountain and they needed everyone to pray. So that, <laughs> that now that I'm a mom, I get it. Um, but that is the kind of person I was in my 20s. And... I racked up all these exciting travels around the world. I had a pretty good career going on Capitol Hill, and I had married my dream guy. Um, he, he even gave me a surfboard as our wedding present, kind of a sign of our life together and what, what was ahead and what we were like together. Um, Taylor and I frequently did these beach trips and went backpacking together. And, you know, before Taylor, I had not had great dating experiences. So marrying this wonderful, amazing man was just this awesome gift to me because it was just such, you know, a, an unexpected joy. And I can honestly say our first years of marriage were just bliss. We didn't have a hard first couple years. They were just so wonderful. Um, we got pregnant when I was 29 years old, and I'm kind of the type of person who's a bucket list. Is anyone else like a bucket list type of person? I don't know. We're Northern Virginia people. You know how it is. And I, so I had this bucket list of everything I want to accomplish by 30. I was pregnant at 29, so I was I, I pretty much hit everything, guys. And I'm not saying this to say, like, go me. I'm saying this to say my plan A was going really really well and my husband and I gave glory to God you know we love the Lord separately and we love the Lord together and um, you know we wanted to grow in our faith together so everything was going great <laughs> and then I turned 30 years old May 15th 2019 and then I had my son uh, shortly after that a couple days after that and it was a pretty normal birth experience. I mean, nothing really went wrong. He was very healthy. Everything was great. Uh, the first couple of years of our marriage, I'd had a little bit of neck and shoulder pain. And um, those of you that my husband know, he's six foot six. And so I thought, well, I'm looking up at that guy a lot. I must have like a crick in my neck. I really thought that. Um, and I'd gone to a chiropractor, all this stuff. And so I had this pain, but didn't think anything of it. And so then I had my son, and pretty much every day after I had him, I got weaker and weaker. I had a, you know, my leg oddly felt weird. I couldn't walk right. My fingers were tingling. And I had a bunch of doctors kind of dismiss me and say, postpartum, that happens. Sorry, you're a woman, you know. <laughs> um, so I just didn't know what to think about this. And then 
two days after my third doctor's appointment, this is two weeks postpartum, I wake up one morning and my right leg's completely paralyzed. And my husband hands me the baby to nurse him. And I start panicking. I said, Taylor, I can't even move my toes. Something is not right here. We need to go to the ER. And um, we were admitted very quickly in the ER. They sent me in for all sorts of CT scans, MRIs. My mom flies up from Florida. Um, they haven't found anything for two days. They have no answers for me. They tell me they're going to send me home uh, because they can't just keep me in the hospital because I'm paralyzed. And my mom and my husband advocate for me, and so we got to do more scans, scan her neck where she says she's had this pain. And I'm becoming more paralyzed, like, hour by hour. It's getting worse. And then after two days of all of these scans, being in the hospital, baby in the hospital, um, <clears throat> the, the doctors... Uh, say there's a lesion, and tomorrow morning the neurosurgeon's going to come in and tell you what that means. And a lesion, I have no idea what that means. Um, the doctor comes in, shows the MRI, shows what a normal, healthy spinal cord should look like. Your spinal cord is inside your vertebrae. And says, this is what your spinal cord looks like. And there was basically a hot dog growing in the middle of it, pushing it out. Um, and this neurosurgeon probably had the worst bedside manner you can imagine and, and, and delivered this news very poorly. He was kind of, a, I guess, a new neurosurgeon and says, you're a young family. You should probably get your affairs in order. This is pretty bad. And yeah, it was, it was not bad. And um, I, you know, it's, it's all kind of a blur. I think my family had all filed out and taken the baby out. And I just remember my husband and I sobbing together and then our community rallied around us and found, long story short, lots of miracles short, found the best neurosurgeon in the world was just down the road in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. So we um, transferred to Johns Hopkins as soon as they have a bed available for us. And a week after I get that diagnosis, I have an eight-hour surgery where they cut my entire spine open, get into the spinal cord, which is really incredibly sensitive and doesn't regenerate your spinal cord. And my, my husband said it's the darkest day, waiting those eight hours for the results. We don't know what the results are be, would be. We're told good likelihood that, I, probably 25% likelihood that I'm a quadriplegic, but we don't know, could be better, could be worse. And um, eight hours of surgery is over. I, what I remember, my husband comes in and he says, Rachel, great news. The neurosurgeon says it went the best it possibly could have gone. And I said, are you kidding me? Why are you smiling? I am in terrible pain and I can't move from my shoulders down. I'm so disoriented. <laughs> this, I'm, I believe you when you say that this doctor says it's a good outcome. This is terrifying. Uh, and I just kind of sat in that terror of my physicality for a while, for a couple of days. And then after I got through that, the emotions of, I was in the ICU at that time for five days. My baby couldn't come to the ICU, right? There's too many germs and issues. So I'm five days without my newborn. And um, it was pretty terrible. And the, I had some sweet nurses who then snuck me out after five days into the courtyard to see him. And they put him on my chest. I'm you know, paralyzed from the shoulders. I was like, lay him on my chest. 
and um, um, so then that 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 was that began the journey. <laughs> um, so after that very hard week in the ICU recovering, I get that little glimmer of hope where I get my baby on my chest. They move me out of the ICU. We're moving towards recovery. This is great news. And then Hannah alluded to just a couple days after that, I started getting some blood clots. It was postpartum, it was paralyzed, and they couldn't give me blood thinners. Um, so the blood clots traveled up to my lungs, and I had a massive pulmonary embolism right there in front of my mom, my mother-in-law, my baby, my husband, um, my college best friend was in the room, and Taylor told me he thought I was dying. <laughs> and um, praise God, I was still in the hospital. If I had not been in the hospital, I would be dead. If I was not in the hands of nurses when it happened, I would be dead. Um, but I am alive. <laughs> and so that was, I recovered from that, went back to ICU. From there, I went into um, a rehab hospital. So my family found me the best possible rehab hospital. And that is when I started my journey towards you know, wholeness and recovery. And the first day I get there, um, they said, all right, it's time to get in a wheelchair and sit up. And I was like, I haven't even sat up. I've sat up for 30 seconds. Like It's been a month of being flat on my back. And so I got in the wheelchair, and then from that point on, for three months, what it looked like was physical therapy and occupational therapy and many other therapies for about five hours a day until I couldn't stand it anymore. So I spent those three months doing that. And during that time, there were a lot of indignities that I faced. I don't know, many of you have probably had hospital stays and know how hard they are, long-term hospital stays. Um, but the very worst part of every day was the evenings. <clears throat> part of being paralyzed to that level, so it was quadriplegic still, is that your, um, and this could be a little bit graphic, your, your bowel and bladder um, don't work there. Your spinal cord does that connection for you. And when there's a block in it and it's broken, it doesn't work. Um, so every night I had this, during the day I had this wonderful community. My room was always like the most popular room in the rehab hospital. Um, the baby was in there, the nurses loved the baby. And then at night everyone had to go home. My baby would go across the street to um, a hotel with my mother-in-law. And my husband would stay with me when, he would come back to DC to work a couple days a week, but when he was in town, he would stay with me there in Philadelphia. And I won't get into the details, but it involves suppositories and having to sit over a toilet and having nurses um, shower me whenever they had time in between rooms. So I had to be bathed, I couldn't bathe myself. And I just, it was, it was not fun. And I would, this, I had this vivid memory. This was like my, one of my turning point memories with God. There I am after being bathed, sitting over the toilet, watching probably reality TV because we're trying to get our minds off of everything. And my husband kind of hears me start weeping and he comes in and I'm in all my postpartum glory, my paralyzed atrophy muscle glory. Um, and he holds my hand. And I had just been scrolling through Instagram as I was stuck sitting there. And I saw all my friends taking their kids to the parks, to the pool. <laughs> I saw people you know, complaining about being up at night with their baby. And I thought just how badly 
I wanted to be up at night with my baby. <laughs> and the chasm between what I wanted my life to look like and what my life was was so far. It was so far. And so I sobbed to Taylor from my toilet seat and said, you know, I just want to be a normal mom with my newborn right now. And at this point, our story had been shared to thousands, of, tens of thousands of people like across the world. Many of you probably read it on our blog. And I was like, thousands of people are watching. Like if Jesus healed me right now, thousands of people would know his glory. Like this would be an amazing miracle. This would be on the news. Like this would be a miracle that would turn people's lives to Christ. Like why, why isn't God healing me? Like I, I, we pray so hard, thousands of people praying. Why am I not healed? And we just wrestled with it together. And he kind of, he says he was kind of thinking out loud and he said, through his tears as well, maybe the bigger miracle is to suffer well. <laughs> and I had to sit with that for a while. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't want it to be true. He didn't want it to be true. We wanted the pick up your mat and walk moment. <laughs> um, and while I, I definitely believe those instant miracles still happen in this life, they happen in the Bible, Jesus performed them um, while he was on earth, there are also, the Bible is so full of long suffering. So I started off this talk by saying that we're all going to suffer, and you know, I have my own personal story, but I wanted to get into, you know, a little like, what is the biblical basis for saying this? You know, I could just be speaking from my own experience, but when you look at the entire Bible, let's see if I can separate my pages. When you look at the entire Bible, you see Abraham and Sarah left their homes and families, arrived at the promised land in famine, and they waited on an elusive promise of a baby in old age. Jacob toiled for 14 years waiting for his love after enduring trickery from his father-in-law. Joseph, he sat in prison after his brother sold him off and left him for dead. Moses spent 40 years, 40 boring years, tending sheep <laughs> after being raised in palaces of a superpower. The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians and then wandered in the desert for 40 long years after being freed. David lived in caves after being hunted down by Saul. The prophet Elijah despaired. He feared death as he ran away from the evil queen Jezebel after he had been a part of a big miracle of fire coming down from heaven, for heaven's sake, in front of all his enemies. And he trudged through the desert, likely in silence. We don't hear that God spoke to him. Um, and he was afraid. The Israelites were in exile under hostile foreign governments for 400 years. Mary faced social, probably persecution or fear of it for a seemingly illegitimate preg pregnancy. It is believed all of Jesus' disciples but John faced a gruesome death. So, you know, we read these stories and we read them at their conclusion. We get to the conclusion pretty quickly in the Bible without imagining the total anguish they were in and that in-between and that long chasm between what they wished their lives were and what it was then. Um, they were sitting in the desert. They were waiting and they were trudging onward in long, hard, painful days. And God, it sounds like God was silent a lot of the time. 
Um, but you know, we all know he was near because we see the ending of all of these stories. And of course, there's Jesus, the very son of God, who asked, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. If you're willing, take this cup from me. This is Jesus, the son of God. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That comforts me to know that he wanted his suffering taken away at one point. Um, So, you know, for me, the many dark nights in the hospital bed with no miraculous explosions of leg movement or a booming voice of God or frankly, any audible voice of God declaring a mystical purpose to it all. I would do a lot of wondering, and I mean, I'm, I look around, maybe you have had long, dark nights of wondering and asking God in prayer and hoping, like, please, Lord, please restore me. And in the darkness, for me, what I came to was, you know, why do I keep hoping? Why do I keep going to God? And the answer that I came up to at the end of my hospital stay was, where else could I go? Either all that I have just been through, everything I just told you is meaningless, these decaying earth suits, all the evil, all of the pain in the world, either it's all meaningless or there is meaning. And I want you to hear this. I don't mistake when I say meaning that I'm saying everything happens for a reason. You know, put the shiny rainbow on it. Everything happens for a reason. Um, no, because I have, I have a really hard time saying there's a good reason for a 30-year-old new mom to become a quadriplegic. I have a hard time thinking there's a good reason. But there is meaning in that my pain is not unseen. Your pain is not unseen. It's not cosmically unimportant. It's not just an illusion, something to rise above, bootstrap above, if you just try hard enough, reading some, reaching some Buddhist Zen stage of enlightenment. <laughs> no, your pain, my pain, God sees it, and it will be redeemed. And I love that our speaker said, the ways of God are sometimes unknowable. It will be redeemed in some unknowable way. And I'm going to end this talk with a little bit more on that. Um, so back to where else could I go? In John chapter 6, Jesus is delivering some teachings that he declares are hard. And the text says, many people walked away. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the eternal words of life. It sounds that simple, but it's that hard as well. So many of you might be wondering, okay, so you came here today, Rachel, to tell us how hard life is. <laughs> we know that already. <laughs> um, what do we do about this? And how do we become transformed into more people more like Christ and not into bitter, hardened people in the face of all of this? And so I want you, whether you're walking through suffering right now or you're preparing for it ahead, um, there, are, there are two Bible verses I want you to hide in your hearts that I put on the, the handout. First is 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction 
is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I'm going to be honest with you. My light momentary afflictions, they don't feel light and momentary a lot of the time. <laughs> I, I deeply wish that I do not have the chronic pain that is ongoing with what I've been through. I face this terrible hand pain that just won't go away and, and shocks me multiple times a day. Um, and I wish, I wish terribly that I could run out my door and play soccer with my little four-year-old. I wish terribly that that affliction was taken away from me, and it doesn't feel white and momentary. Um, but these weaknesses have also given me something, a longing for the eternal, and I think that's what this verse is about. The weight of this world is very heavy, but it is momentary. It is momentary and temporary. In my previous plan A life that I told you about, I, I don't think I really truly knew what it was like to cast my eyes towards heaven and long for eternity. Suffering gives you that. And I will tell you when I face a hard day now, I think that, and I often say out loud, like this is only temporary. This is only temporary. So that's the first verse. The second verse going to camp out a little bit. And I love that this whole retreat is about Romans, um, Romans 5, 3 through 5. We can rejoice too that when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And I love this message version. I know people have different opinions on the message, but this, I love this. This is the version. There is more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered seal of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we are never left feeling short-changed. Quite the contrary, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. This is not a rational way to think about great suffering. <laughs> Expecting God to do great things that's the end of this when we're hemmed in by trials. That's the, how Paul ends this message. Shouldn't my suffering, be it unwanted singleness, cancer, a loss of a child, a loss of a marriage, shouldn't that make me cynical and afraid of the future? I mean, that is how I think the human condition is and how what the world tells us. Um, and I'm no stranger to this thinking. I mean, I have to get an MRI every year to make sure that the tumor is not coming back. And those fears sneak up on me. But walking through this suffering with Jesus is indeed counterintuitive to the scientific method. My suffering is never endured alone. So on the other side of my chronic pain flare-up or my pulmonary embolism or my MRIs is a great muscle of perseverance that is gaining strength. And as the Holy Spirit and I gain endurance in all of those sleepless nights, casting my fears on the shoulders of God, my character was growing. 
So as those muscles of endurance build up my character, I had the strength to hope against all odds and all rationality. In these almost four years, I've been on, I've been on the lookout for what God will do next. And throughout this suffering, I have this just deep knowing that my hope is not going to be put to shame because of God's love for me, that God's felt love for me. And I want to try to color how this manifests because sometimes that those words can sound like Christianese. <laughs> um, I feel everything so deeply now, and I have these new glasses that almost give me this look into the supernatural veil. <laughs> And I could fill pages with all these little tiny miracles that I have experienced over these four years. Um, If you follow me on social media, you can see that I can walk a mile on the treadmill now. And my bladder and bowels are healed after that year. And I had the most beautiful redemptive labor and delivery of my second baby 10 months ago. And, you know, in between, like I said, I still have the pain every day. But in between that, I just cry tears of joy looking at these little miracle babies' faces of the strength I feel in my body when I take a step. Um, And I really just like this quote from author Frederick Buechner, and he captures it so well. Whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, it's well to pay the closest attention. They're not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and summoning to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. And that's really lovely next time you have tears of joy in your eyes. So with that, I want us to kind of take that Romans 5 And I want to think on it, you all to think on it individually. So I put a little worksheet, more or less, on your sheet. And I'm just going to give us a couple of minutes here to um, think about it silently yourself. If you want to, you know, whisper with a neighbor, you can, or talk about it with them later. But I'm just going to walk us through these questions that I want you to think about for yourself. And then at the end of these questions, I have a little spoken word song to play. So first, first question, and if you need a worksheet, I think they're floating around here. Someone up here in the front needs it. All right, so the first question, what trial or trials have you walked through? And, you know, one thing when I share my story, I don't want you to think like, well, I haven't been paralyzed, so I haven't been through anything. <laughs> no, your trial is valid and God sees it. So don't, don't measure it against someone else's trials. All right, next. When you reflect on what you've been through, does it make you fearful about the future or bitter about your past? As you're thinking about that and writing it down, ask God to give you an eternal perspective about it. As you look back and you reflect on these things, can you think about what muscles of endurance you have gained from going through them? 
And now as you're kind of imagining your spiritual muscles of perseverance, as you've endured, how are ways that your character has been strengthened? Sometimes that word character feels a little open-ended as I reflect on it. So I like the message way of saying it. Um, they took that passage and said, the tempered steel of virtue. My last question is, do you have hope? And what does that hope look like? I'm gonna ask uh, for a song to be played. It's actually a short spoken word. good is that like I heard that and I thought this is this is it um that is wait by beautiful eulogy is the name of the group um yeah that that came randomly and I was like this is it you know this kind of encapsulate all 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 of those verses but I want to acknowledge if you just went through this and you thought about what you had been through and that last question you really struggled with on hope. Um, you know, I think of one of my dear friends is working daily with people in Ukraine who are facing unimaginable atrocities every single day. And I just think of the other things my friends have been through and how hard it must be to drum up hope a lot of times. And I told you, I really struggled with those dark nights of why am I suffering? Um, I, want, I want to end this discussion with a vision of what God's eternal restoration will be like when God finally makes things a new creation. And I love that our last talk with Courtney Doctor got to this a little bit. So I'm going to read one last verse and... This verse is so dear to me because it ended up being really prescient <clears throat> because it was read at our wedding. Um, my father-in-law picked this verse. He, he did our wedding officiation for us, and it's so beautiful. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So as you soak in what eternity is going to look like with every tear wiped away, I want you to consider this about Jesus' suffering. Jesus entered into eternal glory through an entry point of immense suffering and persecution. Then when Jesus was raised from the dead and he returned to earth, the accounts of those who saw him noted something. He still had his scars. He still came back with his scars. I think about the big cut I have of my spine. That scar is going to be there my whole life. And it might, maybe it's there. I don't know. Maybe it will be in there in heaven. And when I think about that, I, I just, I, I wondered about that for a long time and recently read in a book club, this book called Art and Faith by Makoto Fujimara. And he had this great explanation that might be true of it. And he says, the carrying over of the wound of Christ from the old creation to the new marks a startling portal from which to consider the link between what we do on this side of eternity and what we do on the other side. Our wounds matter to God and they are connected to Christ's sacrifice. In Fujimara's book, he gives the illustration of this ancient Japanese art form, and I'm probably gonna say it wrong, but it's called kintsugi. And I'm gonna ask my mom to pass, I have a little show and tell, to pass around what kintsugi looks like. This is like a Amazon version of it. I'm sure the real thing from Japan is much more beautiful, but pass this around. In Fujimara's book, um, he gives this illustration of kintsugi. Kintsugi is when you take a broken teaware or a bowl and put the pieces back together after they have broken. And it's often put back together with gold. This gold creates a new piece of pottery that's more valuable and more beautiful than the original piece of pottery was. And no two works will look the same and none will be broken in the same way. The good news, the gospel, starts with an acknowledgement of our brokenness, right? We all come to Christ knowing our brokenness. And Jesus, he didn't come only to fix us and say, that original you, that's what I'm going to restore you as. No, he says, I'm going to make you a new creation. Um, he, he's not just going to glue back the old broken, you know, earth suit pieces, uh, Fujimara's book says that an ultimate kintsugi master, master, he doesn't try to fix the shards of pottery, but he beholds the beauty of their brokenness as he puts every little piece back together. And so I consider my own broken pieces in this light. Like a kintsugi bowl, we're not just restored, but Christ makes us a new creation as he is tenderly gathering up these little broken pieces. All your tears, all your pain, all the joy of your story 
and he's making it all beautiful in the new creation of eternity. Each of us is held and made new by Christ. You will suffer and be broken at some point in your life. Your suffering will transform you one way or the other, but your suffering is not meaningless because God promises to redeem us and make us a new creation. And it looks like I ended early so I can take questions. (laughs) 